If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. We, uh, Lord willing, will be... I'll turn that on eventually. There you go. Um, Lord willing, we will conclude our study of the Beatitudes uh, this week, and we'll continue to march through, uh, Lord willing, through, through the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Our, our goal has been to uncover, now four weeks into it, what is the secret to the blessed life. And we will conclude that here today, page 852 of your pew Bibles, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Three verses this morning. The evangelist Matthew, quoting our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask as always that you would open our entire being, our minds and our hearts and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we would go in obedience to Christ, that what we would discover here. It's a text that is foreign to us, but I fear it will not be before long. May we see here the call to courageous hope of complete abandonment of this world and hopes of Christ, that we would become like him and find the joy that is found in him. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. His name was Ignatius of Antioch. His, uh, that name will be on the quiz at the end of the service. There is a lovely picture of him. The year is 107 A.D., so just a few decades after the resurrection of Christ and the death of the apostles, roughly about 10 years after the apostle John himself had died um, or had been sent to uh, Patmos. Um, in 107 A.D., Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, was condemned to die. Uh, since great festivities were planned in Rome, Ignatius was being sent by the Roman authorities to Rome by which he would be executed. Ignatius, on this long trip from Smyrna to, to Rome, already knew the means of his execution. He would be put in the middle of an arena by which starving wild animals would have their go at him. Along the way, he wrote seven letters to, to various individuals and churches. Some of them may sound familiar. For example, he wrote a letter to the Smyrna church, which is the same church that uh, John had wrote a letter to in the letter of, uh, of, of Revelation, in the book of Revelation. He wrote one to Polycarp. We'll come back to that name uh, later on. But the one that interests me the most is a letter he wrote to the church in Rome, same church that the Apostle Paul had written a letter to 50 to 60 years prior uh, to, to Ignatius writing the letter. And Ignatius' letter, and you could read it online, it's free, uh, just Google it. And, and, and his, his, the letter is fairly short, and he makes really one major plea. His plea is that although the Romans love him and want to keep him alive and safe, using their own political pull and influence in the capital city, he asked the Romans to do nothing for him rather to give him the honor of being sent to Rome, tied down in the middle of the arena to become food for wild animals. 
In fact, he, he said that he refused their help because, quote, so that I may not only be called a Christian, but also behave as one. He goes on to quote, if you remain silent about me, I shall become a word of God. But if you allow yourselves to be swayed by the love in which you hold my flesh, I shall again be no more than a human voice. When you read of the ancient martyrs, particularly of, of the age of the patristics after the closing of the New Testament canon, it really is uh, incredible to read their stories where they were uh, unjustly abused and incarcerated and often murdered for simply being faithful to Christ. So common was persecution in the early ages that it was common for Christians who were being persecuted to rejoice at the opportunity they were given to face certain death because they considered, uh, that God considered them rather, to be worthy of such a death. I'll be honest with you, whenever I read the accounts of the early Christians and the suffering they had under Rome, it's foreign to me. What are the chances to find any Christian in America right now who would write such a letter like Ignatius? What are the chances of any Christian in the West right now consider it themselves worthy to suffer as they did? This is a foreign world to us. So when we come to Matthew 5 and Jesus says, Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's hard for us as 21st century Americans, even in a secular culture, to really appreciate what it is that Jesus says here. You may recall in, in our study of the Beatitudes, we've seen Jesus gives us three secrets to the blessed life. The first is, of course, a humbled faith by which we come to Christ as uh, beggars in desperate need of redemption, of his riches of grace. And, and we are beggars not because of our lack of wealth, but because of our lack of righteousness. We come to him as sinners. And, and in that moment of desperation, he enriches us by grace. We then saw that, that coming from a humbled faith, the secret to the blessed life is uh, righteous virtue by which we hunger and thirst and starve for righteousness, which means we are peacemakers. We're pure in heart. We show mercy as, as Christ has demonstrated all of those things for us. And in giving of ourselves of others, we find the blessed life in Christ and in giving and showing love. And here we see the third secret to the blessed life, and that is courageous hope. Do you mind that instead of exegeting this as we usually do, and I've, I've exegeted that in the past, you can go to the sermon podcast, you can find that from years ago. But I'd like to offer just a few, a few observations for you this morning coming out of this text. The first observation is that suffering does not mitigate God's presence. These are things I've just noticed from the text. The first is suffering does not mitigate God's presence. Americans notoriously associate suffering either with divine disfavor or divine absence. Both of them will wreck your faith. If you are suffering through some pain or sorrow or travail, you, the temptation is to think, God must be mad at me. I'm not good enough. I need to do this or that. And if you allow yourself down that road, that road ends at a dead end of despair and hopelessness. Because you think that faith is performance. Rather, faith is simply repentance and belief. 
Or we think that I'm such a good person that God owes me something. He owes me the perfect family, the perfect job, the perfect career, the perfect degrees, the perfect church, or the perfect marriage, whatever. So whenever I am robbed of something, when something bad happens, I guess that means God isn't as good as I thought he was. Both will make a shipwreck of your faith. And and as a result, we turn God into a type of powerful babysitter. His main job is to keep us safe. When we suffer, it's either because he is upset with us or because he is completely absent and unable to care for us. Christianity is not that kind of faith. It was conceived at the cross, which is the, 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 the climax of human suffering, human injustice. There our Savior becomes a sympathetic high priest, the writer of Hebrews tells us, so that he knows what it's like to be a human who suffers. So we have in our faith at its core a story of suffering. Yet the story doesn't end with injustice. It ends with triumph. So although our faith was conceived at the cross, it was birthed at the empty tomb. And so here we must be reminded, as Christ would show us here, suffering does not mitigate God's presence or God's love or God's favor. Rather, we are to see that even through suffering, we see that God is at work and we know he's at work because he has walked out of the tomb conquering the grave. Suffering does not mitigate God's presence. Secondly, another observation I have from this text is that Christians are fueled by hope. The world has always been full of people who hate the people of God. If you don't believe me, there's a book you can pick up for fairly cheap. It's called the Bible. And, And from the very beginning, from Abel to Christ to the apostles, the people of God suffer. And they are hated by the world. And I could give you countless examples of that in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and throughout church history. Ignatius being a good example of one. Even right now, Christians are suffering more than Christians have ever suffered in the history of Christianity. According to Open Doors Ministries, we've had some representatives come here to the church for International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Right now, more than 312 Christians face, quote, very high or extreme levels of persecution just in the top 50 persecuting nations. The top three, in case you want to know, are North Korea. They've been at the top outside of Afghanistan, I believe it was a year ago, was at the top. But North Korea has been at the top for at least a decade now. Top three in North Korea, Somalia, and Yemen. 312 million Christians. That's just shy of the American population. One in seven Christians around the world are are experiencing persecution. One in five Christians are suffering in Africa. One in two in five Christians are persecuted in Asia. Which means three in, in five Christians are persecuted on two continents alone. Other statistics worth noting here, in 2022, 5,621 Christians were murdered because of their faith. Likewise, in the same year, 2,110 churches were under attack, many of them destroyed. The same year, last year, 4,542 Christians were detained. Forgive me, then, when I see numbers like this, when I scoff at the liberal attempt that they've done for 150 plus years now at trying to modify the gospel and the Christian faith so as to make it much nicer to a pagan world. You've noticed this trend that if we deny the virgin birth because he really believes that, they'll like us more. 
If we compromised on sexual ethics, then they'll like us more. They'll be nicer to us. What you'll find is you eventually run out of things to deny and no one still likes you. What is it that Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We've yet to say anything about the chaotic pit rather, that awaits believers in the West. We are entering the stage of marginalization as Christians. Marginalization will fuel social pressure, which will conclude with legal targeting. Right now, it's uncomfortable to say certain things about our faith. Before long, good luck getting a job. And before long after that, this church will owe taxes on very expensive property. Then let's see what happens to our weekly tithes. The Colson Center likes to say, we are entering the stage by which we can conclude my parents will die in their beds. I will die in prison and my children will die in the streets. But I want you to notice what Jesus says here. Notice the tense change in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sakes. And then then go down to verse 11. Notice the change in tenses. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. You see the change? It's easy for us to sit comfortably in our padded pews uh, with, with, with the heat on on a cold day to say, yeah, man, those Christians, man, they're living the life, man. They, they, they're, they're really persevering, and we're going to lift them up in prayer. Blessed are those Christians over in Asia right now. It's another thing when the tense becomes them to you and me. But it's the same blessing for both. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sakes. Christians throughout history have learned, whether in periods of peace or whether in periods of persecution, we live by hope. We do not rely on governments. We do not rely on politicians, legal experts, entertainers, pundits, influencers, or anyone else. Our hope is in a crucified Savior who is risen from the dead. Please hear me, dear believers. You and I have got to learn this right now. We spend more energy hoping in someone to fix our problems rather than a Savior who has already done so. Our hope is not in this world. It is in Christ who has overcome it. Look again what he says in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you, when others persecute you, when others utter all kinds of evil falsely on my account. Notice, rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. If we spend the first week of the year defining the word blessed, the closest we get in the Beatitudes is right there in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. But it is not in the context of spiritual poverty or being peacemakers or merciful or meek. It is in the context, Jesus reserves it, of when the wild beasts are running towards us. When they light the fire and we start to burn. When we are dragged out of the city after being stoned. That's the moment, he tells us, to to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. 
That is the closest we get to to the definition of blessedness in the Beatitudes. Why? Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the saints before you. And they will persecute the saints after you. You now join a heavenly choir of martyrs. And those who have suffered for the faith. Read Revelation. It is the martyrs who who cry out to Christ. Who are under the altar. Given the white robe of righteousness dipped in blood. Or as the psalmist put it, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We are fueled by hope. Whether that is in a Christianized society where we know the difference between male and female and right and wrong, or is in a society that is utterly pagan and broken. We are fueled not by the system, but by a Savior. Let me add just one more observation here. I want to spend some time on it, which means you're probably not going to get out early. That is, thirdly, this passage makes no sense, right? Is, is that helpful to you? Right? I don't need to write that one down. I, I was already thinking it. Took the words right out of my mouth. Makes no sense to me. Does it make any sense to you? I am an American. That's how I identify. These verses are foreign to me, and I suspect they're equally foreign to you. Now, as we increasingly find ourselves as sojourners in Babylon, I've noticed over the years, we as American evangelicals are often more American than we are evangelical. In fact, if we were to go back to the first, first few centuries of the church, we would ask, you're Roman Christians. Which one are you, are you more of, Roman or Christian? They would say, oh, we're Roman by name only. We are Christian in, in, our, in who we really are. But if I were to survey the average believer in, the West, in America right now, we look more American than we do evangelical. Can I give you a few, a few uh, reasons why that is and why this passage, I just really struggle with it and making sense of it? Because I'm guilty of this. I think as American. I grew up as American. I function as American. Let me give you a few reasons why I struggle with this passage. We care more about comfort than we do Christ. When was the last time you or I were ever made uncomfortable because of our faith and made decisions knowing we were going to be made uncomfortable? We fear marginalization and will hide if we are made outcasts. This is the real reason, let's be honest, Christians, you and I do not share our faith. This is the reason why we don't share our faith. Because people don't want to hear it. People will become uncomfortable. People will grow distant from us. People don't want want to be around us. People will label us this or that. And our society is built on the sand that everyday lifestyle should be opened unless your lifestyle says otherwise. And that makes us feel uncomfortable because no one wants to be my friend now. If we can't handle the disapproval of our neighbors, how will we handle the mobs of angry protesters, prison bars, or isolation? Maybe comfort is not the secret to the blessed life. Or consider how we care about ease more than we care about eternity. If given the choice, Americans prefer the easy route. I used last week the example of the diet gummies from Oprah, right? Right, Yeah, give me one of those and then get me two Big Macs. All right, I'm eating the gummies. I'm good. Give me the easy life. That's the way we Americans are, right? 
I mean, I could have before coming to the church. I could have done the laundry, I could have done the dishes, and I could have done the vacuuming by hitting three buttons. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible that you could do that? I could call my entire family by hitting about four buttons or three buttons. Sister, brother, parents. Let's all get on the phone. Happy birthday for the rest of the year with Don. Boom. Fix that problem right there. We love ease. This is our preferred way of life. We want our wars without blood. We want our choices without effort. And we want work without sweats. We love ease as Americans. But there is no ease when it comes to the gospel. Missionary David Brannard, I meant to, I think I still have his journal. Let's let someone else borrow it, which means I'll never get it back, and that's fine. Um, well, we had to read his journal when I was at, at Boyce, and uh, it's, it's, it's a slog. And the reason it's a slog is, is because of the type of missionary he was. David Brannard was commissioned in Scotland as a missionary to Native Americans in 1742. Most Americans weren't even here then. He spent most of his time starving and shivering. You read his, his diary, and it is a slog because every day it's, I'm cold again. Every day is, I'm hungry again. Every day it's, they won't let me in the tribe again. Every day, it's like that. And I remember when we discussed it in my great books class of boys, the, my professor, he, he says, I bet you guys are struggling with this book. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not a very good story. He says, here's the thing. You and I have never been hungry. You and I have never been cold. Never. We've never experienced that. Here's a man far away from home in a foreign land with a foreign people by which he does not speak their language or understand their culture. He is there to tell them about Jesus. He, he barely has clothes. He barely has a place to lay down at night. He's shivering. But he's been called to a gospel that is not easy. To a ministry that is not for the lighthearted. Or consider William Carey. He left England in, in, in the 1800s and dedicated his life to the lost nation of India. It would be about nine years before he reached his first convert. He suffered incredibly only to establish the church there in a nation that had never heard of Jesus, at least not for several centuries. Adoniram Judson was an early Baptist. I didn't put Judson up here. I apologize. Judson suffered in prison. He was the, first, the father of American missionaries. In case you know, he became a Baptist along, along the way there. He read his Bible, discovered the truth about baptism. Anyways, he suffered incredibly overseas, often in prison during political unrest. And his first wife died as a result, and his second wife suffered as well. In fact, his, his wives, because of his own suffering in prison, couldn't do anything. They had to run the ministries and had all the while trying to keep him fed and everything else in that prison. Or consider Jim Elliott and his fellow missionaries. Perhaps you're familiar with, with the story. Uh, maybe you've heard of Elizabeth Elliott. That is the late Jim Elliott's wife. They went to an unreached tribe in South America. When they finally landed, the tribe came out with spears and killed every single one of them. Their bodies were found days later. The families responded not by heading back to America that would have been easy to sell books and to be on the news. They returned, walked back into the tribe, befriended the very people who murdered their husbands and fathers because Jesus was worth it. Jesus was worth it. But you and I would never do that because we want an easy life. Not a Christ-haunted life. 
Right now, Christians in China are huddled together with a lit candle, hoping the government won't find out about it. Their whispers are more joyful in song than our worship is in congregations around the country. Why is that? Right now, Christians in Nigeria, Afghanistan, and Iran risk murder at any minute from Islamic radicals. Right now, untold number of North Korean believers are awaiting execution simply because Jesus is Lord and not, not their, um, I can't even think of his name, Kim Jong-un or whatever his name is. And we spend most of our time as believers complaining about personal preferences and our preferred traditions. Maybe consumerism isn't the secret to the blessed life. Maybe. Thirdly, under this banner of this text doesn't make any sense to me as an American, we care more about success than a savior. I think American evangelicalism is at a real turning point for our country. We know we are no longer the majority culture yielding incredible power around this country. And for many of us, we are holding on to it with our last grasp. You remember the old Looney Tune cartoons? Let's just say, let's say it's a, a, a oh, a, oh, their names just left me. The cat that always wanted to eat the bird, Tweety Bird. What's his name? Sylvester. Sylvester. My goodness, I need to go home or something. I don't know. Couldn't remember Sylvester, right? We all love Sylvester and Tweever. You know, it's like if Sylvester is, is holding on with one hand, right, over the cliff, what's Tweety Bird going to come? He's going to come and pull up that finger. He's going to pull up that finger, right? That's, 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 that's American evangelicals when it comes to our, our grip on power in America right now. We know we're losing it and we know it, we won't last much longer, but we will hold on to it with our very last finger if we have to. That's the way we are acting right now. We want to believe America is like Jerusalem when in reality America is more like Babylon. We struggle with that because we have an idea of a Christian America, whether or not it actually existed, we can debate. We have this idea and we're scared of what it means when that is gone. And, and to a certain point, we should be frightened of what is coming. Therefore, in the church, the day of large building projects the day of massive gatherings, the days of large budgets is over. With each passing generation, we become more secular and less Christian. You Gen Xers, you might be the last. Us millennials, we tried. You Gen Zers, you, you, you are rare to be in this church right now. It's just going to get worse. And we know this. And that means the main givers are dying out of the local church across the country. The main people who are showing up are dying out across the country. We know this. We don't like to mention it. We don't like to be honest about it. And we think at any minute we can just snap our fingers and vote the right guy in and it'll change. It's not the way it's going to happen. The reason the average Christian is getting older is because our society is getting older. Yes, that's the issue of birth rates. But because younger generations do not, have not embraced the same faith of their forebears. We can debate the cause, but this is reality. And unfortunately, we're spending our final days trying to save the country rather than to convert heathen. The reason isn't gospel, it's Americanism. Success looks better on the resume than faithfulness is. We want to talk about how we expanded our campus, how we built new buildings, how our budgets got larger, how we, how we did these success things. 
Rather than saying the gospel was preached, people believed, and we became more like Jesus at whatever cost. Jesus makes us clear that his followers should rejoice when they are hated, abused, and murdered because they joined the prophets and the martyrs of old. Maybe our egos ain't the secret to the blessed life that we want it to be. But faithfulness is. I'll confess to you, I think this is a text that someone else will be better qualified to preach than me. Not someone who is a seminary professor proficient in Greek or seasoned pastor enjoying his guidestone retirements or an IMB missionary on sabbatical. No. I think we would do well to listen to the voices of forgotten men who once sat shivering in their Soviet cell somewhere in Russia. I think we would do well to listen to the voices of tortured converts whose bodies rot in the Middle Eastern sun because Christ is risen. I think we should listen to the voices of persecuted believers with wounds to prove that indeed blessed are the persecuted. They will tell you that the secret to the blessed life isn't in what you own. It isn't in what you achieve. It isn't in who sings your praises. Rather, it is found in Christ. The secret to the blessed life is knowing that Christ has come. Christ is king. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And I am his. That's the secret to the blessed life. Because that's the secret to the blessed life, why are we panicking about a secular culture? Why are we panicking that we won't be able to write off our tithes for tax purposes? Why are we panicking about the sexual revolution that is going to destroy, continue to destroy homes, our culture, and people are going to be starving for something better? Why are we panicking about this stuff? Has Christ come? Has Christ risen from the dead? Will Christ return? Is the gospel not sufficient for you and I and everyone else? Place your hope in that. I mentioned Ignatius in 107 AD. He was close to another pastor around that time. In fact, this pastor uh, was discipled by some of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. He's a really important figure for us just historically in understanding the New Testament and the early church and all that. His name is Polycarp. I mentioned Polycarp earlier that one of the seven letters Ignatius wrote on his way to execution was written to Polycarp. Polycarp was a martyr too. In 156, he was arrested, tried, and eventually executed by the Roman government. The account of his martyrdom is one of the earliest accounts of a type of martyrdom like this. You really, in the book of Acts, you have, have a few, Stephen being the most prominent one. But then Polycarp becomes really the next uh, major Um, uh, account we have of a martyr. He was arrested because of the bloodthirstiness of a mob. Another Christian had been executed and the mob loved it so much so they started to demand the local bishop, Polycarp of Smyrna, be, be executed. So he was arrested, he was tried, eventually executed. He stood trial in front of a proconsul, I believe his name was Herod, not related to the Herods of the New Testament. Before the proconsul and the angry mob, he was asked, quote, swear by the fortune of Caesar and revile Christ. His most famous quote is this, quote, for 86 years I have served him. He has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? He then was condemned to die by being burned alive. 
Yet when he was about to be burned, the Romans came and they would nail you actually to the stake. It, uh, that way that you, you couldn't escape. You, you, you were going to burn. Polycarp was so courageous that he told the Romans there would be no need to nail him. He would not resist. He would not run. He would submit to the flames. So they grabbed some rope and they tied him like a lamb to be slaughtered. And they lit the flame. His last words were a beautiful prayer as the smoke was rising and the heat was increasing all around him. He prayed. His last word was simply, Amen. Before that, quote, Leave me as I am, for he who gives some strength to endure the fire will also enable me, without your fastening me by nails, to remain without moving in the pile. What courage that is. How is it that Polycarp, Ignatius, Jim Elliot, and countless others, as they are breathing their last breaths, have more joy than the richest and safest of Christians in America right now. I'm not sure we have yet discovered the blessed life. The good news is, very soon, you and I probably will. Let's pray.